the Broadcast Podcast, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello, and a warm welcome to the very first Broadcast Podcast. I'm Jake Cantor. Once we're in full swing, we'll be here every fortnight chewing over the industry's biggest issues, previewing schedule-storming new shows, and turning the microphone on you, the people behind the programmes. This episode, broadcast editor Lisa Campbell heads to a BAFTA screening at former Channel 4, now Sky One comedy Chickens. Plus, coming up later, we talk to Jonathan Stadlin, the man behind BBC Three's ambitious new unscripted sketch show, Boomtown. And we'll find out what will be keeping telly enthusiasts fixated over the sparse summer period. Not least, BBC One's latest Dutch entertainment import, I Love My Country. Thank you for joining us for this inaugural edition of the Broadcast Podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Broadcast Editor Lisa Campbell, Jonathan Stadlin, who is the boss of Knickerbocker Glory, and uh, Stephen D. Wright, our resident columnist and mischief maker. Lisa, we went to press yesterday. Is there anything uh, that caught your attention particularly in this week's issue? Uh, Well, I really like the story about Jamie Oliver, who was at the Broadcast Digital Awards and picked up an award for his FoodTube channel on YouTube. And... um, as well as saying how delighted he was, he did have a bit of a rant about television and f- failing really to find new talent. I-, I think it's a really interesting point. I think, you know, he has brought on new talent on his channel in YouTube. I think it's interesting in terms of, you know, Jonathan's new show on, on BBC Three and the kind of new talent coming through there. And some of those people have already been on YouTube. So I, I think he's kind of saying TV's missing a trick and is just not being imaginative enough to sort of get out there and find new people. He was he was reasonably refreshed at this stage. Yes. Um, but do you think he has a, a valid point, Jonathan? Yeah, and I don't think it's just about food. I mean, I, I get so many presenters coming to me saying, I really want to, you know, present a show. But where are there sort of like nursery slopes for presenters? There is no T4 anymore. There's no, you know, there's not much on MTV. There, are, there aren't many places where you can go and try that. And also, if you're pitching a show, they want someone who's a name. And there's only about eight big recognised name presenters. Maybe there's more. I should do a huge disservice to some people. That's really, really difficult. And I think we need some more people taking risks. And we need some more people um, who are willing to try out new talent. Because I don't think a show succeeds or fails because you've got a massive name on it. And Stephen, you watched Burton and Taylor this week. Uh, potentially BBC Four's last ever drama do you think it was a, a fitting swan song yeah it was, it was a great uh, a great show to watch but the same problem that they've all they've, that all of their sort of docudrama whatever they call them uh, have suffered from which is the lack of budget you know you can tell they're filming somewhere like cardiff or liverpool and it's not new york but the story was good that you know the acting is is superb um and it was a love story and i got all teary-eyed over it you know mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, thank you, Stephen. And here's uh, some of the other stories making headlines in broadcast this week. Pat Young has resigned as the chief creative officer of the BBC's in-house production arm, opening up more questions than answers about the future of a division that makes shows including The Call Centre and Mrs Brown's Boys. Lisa, Pat was a real cheerleader for a BBC that makes its own programmes. How much will he be missed, do you think? He'll be really missed by his team. I think he was credited with being a thoughtful manager who put people first. And you don't get many bosses like that. Obviously, there's me. Uh, But anyway, it's also worth noting that morale was rock bottom when he arrived three years ago within in-house. There'd been massive downsizing and programmes and people moving around the country. So I think he's really turned that around. The big question, of course, everyone's asking is, did his resignation have anything to do with the WOC figures? You might have the figures to hand, Jake. (laughs) I do. Uh, I mean, it was a very bad year again for the BBC in-house. Overall, 
BBC N House made, well, they secured 28% of the WOC compared to Indy's share of 72%. I mean, do you think that might raise questions about in-house guarantees going forward? I, I don't know if you've got a view on that, Stephen. No, my only thought is, isn't it time to just get rid of in-house BBC once and for all? I mean, it's this slow death that's happening. Everybody who goes to the BBC leaves the BBC. They end up as an indie. The indies are is the only real marketplace. It is for every other channel. Let's just get rid of the BBC. But the future is all about owning your own content and having the rights. And, and if, if the BBC doesn't have that, then, you know, we don't get that massive amount of income from BBC Worldwide, which feeds back into the to the licence fee to make more programmes. The, the, the only way to do that. You know, I mean, there's, there's deals. Every channel does deals. Every network does deals. It's just that, you know, in-house to me, as an independent who used to work in-house at the BBC... It now seems to me that it's it's kind of a bloated, slightly sluggish kind of operation. I'm not saying the programmes are bad, but there's a lot of wastage. And I just think that the rest of us work on a very tight ship and the BBC seems to carry on in this sort of, you know, slightly rarefied, slightly protected, you know, let's never criticise it. You know, and I'm not slagging it. I'm just saying, you know, it's like it's hanging on to its glory with in-house. Jonathan, you've worked both in-house and outside the BBC. What are the main difference between working within the production division and an independent? When I worked in the entertainment department in development, there was a huge team of people and we pitched once every three months to controllers. And I remember very clearly we had this idea that had to go through our boss, our boss's boss. Uh, then it went through this red hat, green hat meeting where everyone put green hats on and said, this is why it's good. And they put red hats on and said, this is why it's bad. And by that time, the idea we had, if it started off as a pair of jeans, it would end up as a pair of wife runs. And someone went and got that pair of jeans commissioned at an indie because they were light on their feet. They had four people in development. They went straight to a commissioner at another channel, at Channel 4, and got it commissioned. And that felt like quite a sad state of affairs. And also, I agree with Stephen, a waste of money. So I wouldn't disband in-house production. I think they do some fantastic things. I just think it needs to be streamlined and the waste needs to be looked at. And I also think their remit of viewing figures as a sort of be-all and end-all, while they say that's not be-all and end-all, it definitely is. And I think they need to look at that. Also on the agenda, the small matter of a future king. The birth of George Alexander Louis whipped the broadcasting press into something of a frenzy. But with underwhelming ratings and complaints about the BBC's coverage, delivering the news about the royal delivery wasn't without pain. Did you did you catch much of it, Stephen? I, I uh, yes, I tried to avoid this sort of just standing around looking. But once the baby was born, then it was quite good fun to watch them, essentially discombobulating live on air and talking utter rubbish. And I thought, mm-hmm. I have a career in sort of future royal birth protocol expert, whatever, because you don't need any expertise <laughs> or credibility. You can just talk. Utter rubbish. Kay yeah. Burley in particular, she was tearing around with a microphone, wasn't she, outside the Lindo wing? Yeah. Uh, but no, the, when the birth was actually announced and they cut to Buckingham Palace at 8.30 or whatever, 8.45 or something, and I was busy watching Coronation Street and Hayley was about to reveal her cancer and then all of a sudden it just poof! And I just turned over and you know wallowed in the utter shite that they broadcast for the next 15 minutes. And it was just constant rabble and yeah. talk and just... You know, and then we were all kind of cheering an empty easel and stuff like that. And it was like, oh, and this is BBC One. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I you felt think- sorry for the presenters. I mean, it was really tough, wasn't it? Having all of that to fill. They had nothing to say. Yeah. There was nothing to see. They'd have been better just doing the breaking news alert mm. when it when it happened and then ITV resuming the programme. I did an and- interruption, you know, like at the commercial break before Coronation Street, then went back to Coronation Street. So that actually came across as a bit classier. You mm. know what I mean? The BBC, BBC One did has a 90 minutes. Chickens. Woo! 
you know. I mean, they were genuinely excited, but Christ, you'd think they would have had a bit of stuff they could have rehearsed of, yeah. you know, it's a boy or a girl, it's, a, you know, that's it. I mean, it was fantastically entertaining, but it was bad radio, it wasn't good TV. Mm. Daily Show host John Oliver said that the news had gone on maternity leave. Do you think that's going to be the way going forward now we're entering silly season? It was quite amazing uh, watching journalists talk to other journalists about no news because they didn't have any news apart from they were very excited or things like that. And to watch like seasoned journalists dying on their arse, I mean, that, that was proper entertainment. You don't get that many times. Someone on our website left a comment saying, when a guest came out with the phrase, I think we can look at this as the people's pregnancy. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's when my set went off and you can't blame him for that, can you? <laughs> now, both Channel 4 and Channel 5 have suffered ratings declines across all hours and peak this year. But Channel 4's declines were particularly marked. Uh, Its peak share has fallen 10% this year. There were further declines across all hours as well. Do you think this is worrying times for Channel 4? I think it's worrying times for everybody. Because to me, the big thing isn't just the odd show failing on Channel 4 or whatever, because that's always going to happen. It's the fact that people are watching less and less TV. Now, it's not necessarily a sexier headline. You know, and Ben Frown is going to be celebrating at the moment at Channel 5, and well done to him. But... um, it's more the fact that less and less people are watching. TV's becoming less and less kind of, I don't know, relevant or influential or whatever. And, of course, what it does, it starts to create this sort of panic so that they start commissioning more and more derivative shows because they take less and less risks and blah, 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 blah. The Channel 4 I used to work for, you know, 10 years ago when we were a 10% channel, not showing off there, but we were. But we took a lot of risks because we were kind of, we were able to. We had Big Brother as a kind of big thing to soak up the ratings in, in the summer. They've lost all that. And now they've gone into kind of a weird sort of everything's got a format, everything looks the same. It, it doesn't feel like a confident channel. That's the problem for me. And I'm saying that as maybe as a viewer and as an independent producer. It's bad for us all. Channel 4 is so important to the creative community that there needs to be an open debate. And, when Channel 4 and... fails, we, all, we mm. all shudder. Do you know what I mean? You want a strong Channel 4 like you want a strong BBC. I mean, that's the thing, you know, the whole BBC argument. It, 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 these things are kind of the, the benchmarks that hold us all up. So when they go a bit awry, we all panic. What's more worrying, I think, is that when things are going wrong, they, from what I hear, parachute uh, their sort of chosen execs in to sort of try and save shows, or they pick, you know, they're very, very picky about who they're going to make their shows in the first place. And so everything feels very much the same. And I think if you watch the channel, it feels very samey. There isn't the risk and there isn't the sort of um, remit that they had, which was to try different things. And yes, you can point at a few things, say this is different. But if you watch their eight o'clock um, fair at midweek, it's completely mainstream and I think slightly uninspiring. And that is a worry, I think, for us all, because if you can't go there with an audacious, different idea... You know, where can you go? We've had so many comments on our website about all of this. There are huge concerns. And I think people are saying things like, obviously, anonymously, Channel 4 is sort of plagued by the three M's, which is middle class, middle England and mediocre. And I do think that it does feel like that, particularly in peak time. Where's the creativity and distinctive programming coming from now? It's coming from Israel and Scandinavia. I mean, it should be coming from Channel 4. And finally, chickens. Uh, Lisa, you went to a screening of the, the new Sky One comedy this week. It's produced by Big Talk Productions. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, well, it's it stars and is written by two of the in-betweeners, so Simon Bird and Joe Thomas. 
It's set in the, well, set in 1914 in a village called Rittle-on-Sea. And there's three characters. One is a conscientious objector. Another is a reject from the army because he's got flat feet. And then Bert, who's an amoral, philandering, scaredy cat. It's essentially a sort of flat share comedy, really. So it's, it feels like a modern comedy with a historical setting. You've got these three great characters, I think, that are stuck in this world of women. And they hate them because they're chickens. And that's that's where the um, where the title comes from. So at the screening last week, Simon Bird explained a bit more about it and really how the, the historical setting in the war is, is more a sort of um, fish-out-of-water device rather than being sort of really central to the idea. And I think we have a clip of that. It wasn't that we thought First World War was a great period, let's set a comedy in that period. There's a few sort of just boring, practical reasons behind the idea. One is that the three of us are men, sort of, and we knew that we wanted the other main parts in the show to be female and Barry, yeah. um, who's sort of half and half uh, <laughs> at the time. Suddenly it seemed like a funny idea, three men in a world of women. And so it was more that aspect of it than the historical aspect, I think. That was Simon Bird. Lisa, do you think this will be Sky One's breakthrough comedy? Oh, it's just impossible to say, isn't it? I mean... You know, I, I think comedy is about the most unpredictable of, of all the genre. It's a massive risk. And I think, you know, full credit to Sky for taking this on. It was originally a Channel 4 pilot. They rejected it apparently because the Inbetweeners gang were in various other programmes on Channel 4 at the time, from Friday Night Dinner to Fresh Meat. So maybe they thought they needed to freshen it up and get new talent. I'm not sure if that was the right decision, but it really works on Sky because they've thrown a lot more money at it than the original pilot on Channel 4. It looks brilliant. I mean, they have taken over this whole village and you're really immersed in this world and the, and the sort of level of detail. A bit like Hunderby, actually, you know, that the, the world was beautifully realised. Stuart gives his key commissioners uh, a lot of freedom and a lot of say and a lot of sort of ability to choose what they want to do. And I think if they believe in it, he often goes with them. And I think if you compare that to Channel 4, I've often been in meetings where they go, well, this is what Jay's looking for. What have you got? You'll tell them an idea. I go, well, we'll get back to you in two weeks once we've had a chat with Jay. And I think I can understand why one would want to be across all one's content, but the previous structure where there was lots of key figures who were slightly more autonomous and able to make decisions on their own, there was a bigger spread of sensibility and taste. And I'm not sure that's the case now. It all feels very narrow where it all has to go through one person and I think that's a slight bottleneck at Channel 4 which I think needs to be looked at. The talent on, on stage that night at the, at the Q&A really talked about that and just how much freedom that Sky had given them and how much confidence they'd, they'd had in them to just leave them alone and they said they took ages getting these scripts together and Sky were very you know patient with them and um, I think there really is something in that you know let, let the good people get on with it and look what they can produce. Okay we'll leave it there thanks to Lisa, Steve and Jonathan. The Broadcast Podcast, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Time for some comedy, but this time without a script. Yes, BBC Three's new sketch show Boomtown stars larger-than-life people in real-life scenarios. Let's hear a clip of one such character, self-proclaimed witch Kev, who has invited an estate agent over to value his home. Ah, come in. Thank you. I'm Kev. Okay. Just want you to get an evaluation of my property here. Yep, fantastic. That's what I'm here for. First of all, may I introduce my uh, wife, Sandy? She takes different guises during the day. She's a cat at the moment, okay. and then she'll become something else later, but just ignore her. All right. Um, okay, well, this is the living room. Yep. Lovely high ceilings here. Yep. Um, I use that when the broomstick goes up. Uh, we do have a, a protective force field that's in place around the flat. 
uh, and that will be staying in place. Okay. Do you think that would help at all with the price? Uh, I, I doubt it would add any value, but I also doubt it would uh, devalue the property in any way. Either. Okay. Okay. Jonathan Stadland is the Boomtown producer and boss of Indie Knickerbocker Glory. Could you tell us about how the project came about and how you convinced BBC Three to make it? We actually first pitched this in May 2011 when we first started the company, uh, and it started off as a obdoc about the fashion world. Really, we had a we had a problem in that we'd made pineapple at Pulse, the same production team, and we looked far and wide for another sort of precinct, for want of a less wanky TV word, where there were lots of stories going through and lots of great characters like Louis Spence or Andrew Stone, and they are quite hard to find. So we thought, why don't we create our own? So we started off saying, well, can we do a odd doc on fashion? Then we said, can we create this town, which is fake, but put lots of interesting, uh, weird and wonderful people that we'd found along the way who weren't quite sort of big enough for their own show, but we could say all these people live in Boomtown. So what we've ended up with is, if you think Pineapple is an obdoc, that sort of mixed genres because it had entertainment elements in, and the only ways Essex or Made in Chelsea are documentaries that play on the conventions of a soap opera Boomtown is a documentary that plays on the conventions of a sketch show. So it's sort of like the real fast show, uh, cut really quick like a sketch show, but with real people. I mean, having watched the show, uh, some of the people really open themselves up and uh, they could put themselves up you know, to be ridiculed. I mean, what sort of duty of care have you, have you put in place? I think we've had quite a stringent duty of care. I'd firstly say that I think the show celebrates what I think is the great British eccentric, and that's not me trying to um, shy away from things. I think they are eccentric people, and we celebrate them, and we give them a platform, I think, for doing what they're already doing. So people like Dorota or, or Kev the Witch or Joel the Train Spotter, they're already doing some of these things on YouTube. So we're just giving them a slightly bigger platform to do what they do already. I personally met every single one of them. I was very clear in what the show was, that we were playing on a different genre, that um, it was going to be a, feel like a sketch show, that people would laugh with them and at them. I've sat down personally with each and every one of them and showed them an entire episode. They're all very happy with it. And I think they're very well placed to deal with that. And we've offered them uh, psychological support in terms of aftercare, which they've all declined, but that's still available to them. So I think we've done a sort of quite belt and braces job on it. Broadcast columnist Stephen D. Wright and editor Lisa Campbell are with us. Stephen, I think you, you may have some views on this as well. I was quite shocked by it, really, in terms of... Because it isn't what I was expecting. It, it did feel like a new thing. And I, and I did feel like, oh, TV's moved on and I've suddenly been left behind. I, I genuinely felt a bit kind of, oh, my God, the world's shifted. So I'm really interested to see what's going to happen. But my biggest problem initially was that thing of the, that initial warning. If that hadn't come up, you know, the opening that these people are real, but some of the scenes have been enhanced, etc. That felt like a kind of awful red herring that sort of then was too much in my head as like a producer watching it rather than a viewer. So I would like to see it being seen by people, you know, in a kind of comedy scene where they sit down and watch it and start laughing or whatever, you know. I mean, just watching that clip again uh, with the witch, you know, that made me laugh because I, I loved seeing the estate agent's cheeks get redder and redder. So there are bits that, that work, but the first time I watched it, I was quite kind of... Uh, surprised. Was it your intention to surprise? Personally, I think that um, TV, the form of TV shows, has got very similar, and I find that really boring to watch, um, and I find it very boring to make. So um, if you watch The Wife Swap or X Factor or The Apprentice, I think you sit back, and from a genre expectation point of view, you know exactly what's coming. And I think any surprises that happen in those shows are couched in the context of a genre that we know and know all the rules of. So when you make a show where you can't quite place where you are and you can't quite place what's going on and you have to sit forward and try and work out what's going on, 
I think that's much more exciting and it's definitely much more exciting to make and I hope it's more exciting to watch. We definitely experienced that on Pineapple when we were mixing two different things. And I don't think it's rocket science. I think we're just putting together two genres that are pre-existing, that are already popular and loved. One of those is structured reality. The other of those is comedy. And by putting those together, I hope we've created something slightly different. Only time will tell whether we got that balance right. Some comedy writers have sneered at this idea. What would your response be to them, Jonathan? I think some of the things that some of the people we found in some of their stories, if we'd written and we'd got a scriptwriter to write them, people wouldn't have believed us. So, for instance, Stella, who thinks she's the Afro-British gaga and makes stuff out of sanitary pads um, <laughs> and goes to shops and tries to sell her sanitary pad maxi dress, if we'd written that, I don't think you would have believed us. And so I'm not trying to compete with a comedy, but I think people love comedy and these people did make me laugh. And um, I hope it's joyful and people enjoy it for that but that example like that is is that just going to end up in the daily mail no bbc exploits nutter or whatever i really don't think we're exploiting her because i think i think she's doing that anyway and we've tried to get a complete range of people who, which i think is quite representative of britain that celebrates their life in a different way and i i don't think we're doing anything that's that sort of out of the ordinary structures reality is a really quite established genre now that young audiences really like so much so that there's a whole BAFTA category attributed to it and I hope that we're just moving that genre on in a slightly different and adventurous way. One of the things I quite like because I mean you know you're absolutely right in saying that some of these characters are genuine comedy in the the way they just go around their, their daily lives but what I'm used to seeing is those shining in a documentary where you kind of you're aware they're being filmed and you're aware it's funny rather than what looked like a sort of set up scene. So for example, when the stripper gets interviewed, that scene, I wanted to see the interviewer looking at the camera and sort of going, look, you know, what's going on? Because you could see him being kind of slightly discomforted. That's when it started to feel like this is being made to happen rather than it's genuinely happening. Do you, do you see what I mean? You know, I remember when uh, Pineapple came out the first time, I was that sort of, wow, that moment when it suddenly just tilted. And you were like, oh, but I was already immersed in the show, so I kind of went with it quite easily. This was more, because it just comes out of nowhere, it's harder to get your brain into or your visual. And, and that's where I did feel, I felt old. I felt like, oh my God, I'm not young and cool anymore because this is new and I'm slightly, slightly freaking out. Just to answer Stephen's question, like how much, of, why didn't in the Louis sketch the, the interviewer turn to the camera and acknowledge that something weird was going on? That is the genre sensibility of structured reality mm. where things are set up so that happens in Essex, it happens in Maiden Chelsea. Chelsea, the only way is Chelsea yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, what we did is when we got these people, all we did was we took scenario producers and we said okay, Johnny Nash thinks he's got powers of the ladies how can we put him in situations for maximum comedic effects, so we said okay we sent him and he tried to become a male escort he um, set up his own little seminar to teach men how to pull women and his dry humping in of the sofa in show five is will linger long in my memory um, and he thinks he's so good at oral sex that he created this thing called the Nash Basher so he could thousands of women could benefit from his oral sex technique and him going into a sex shop and trying to sell the Nash Bash you know made me happy I went to bed thinking about that I woke up laughing whether people like it or not I don't know but it's been a great adventure to make and I have to say I think Harlan's Eye at BBC Three really took a risk on that it feels genuinely different whether it works or not is out of my hands but it's been the greatest adventure to make and um, I, I, I was really happy they got opportunity to do that On that note thank you Jonathan uh, Boomtown starts on BBC Three on the 14th of August uh, let us know if you'd like to hear from any other programme makers in the future uh, email me at jake.canter at broadcastnow.co.uk 
The Broadcast Podcast, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Every instalment of The Broadcast Podcast, we're going to look ahead at television programmes soon to hit the airwaves. We start with BBC One's latest import from John DeMole's Telper Media Group, which of course conceived The Voice. The Dutch firm has teamed up with Avalon Television Scotland to make I Love My Country. It's an energetic and patriotic take on a comedy panel show and begins on BBC One on the 3rd of August. Let's hear some typical banter from team captain Frank Skinner and guest Ricky Norwood, a.k.a. Fatboy from EastEnders. Full sense of security, that's what that is. We're just letting you feel good for now. When, just when you talk like that, you're still doing that with your hands. <laughs> it's what happens, it's the energy, man. It's the flow, it's the hype. Yeah, I, can, you know? I can feel it. And I haven't felt energy since the 90s. <laughs> OK. With me now are Lisa Campbell, Stephen D. Wright and Jonathan Stadlin. Lisa, let's, uh, let's start with you on this one. What, 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 what were your first impressions? Oh, I, honestly, I don't know what to say about this. It's one of the worst programmes I've seen in many years. I think... You know when you watch Splash and you thought, this is bad, but it's so bad it's good. This is so bad, it is unwatchable. I thought, well, who's going to get past the first round? It's just lame. There's one bit where you have to find Peterborough on a map and put the Yorkshire pudding down, if you know you know where it is. Sort of funny once, but it, you know, it, goes, it goes on. And, and uh, this was part of a deal, wasn't it, with um, the BBC bought The Voice. And I think to, to stop ITV getting The Voice, it agreed to take on some other formats. That's my conspiracy theory, um, but I think it was part of that first look deal. I mean, you, you know, you you might be able to correct me on that being the no, BBC no, that's reporter. Right. There, there's a there's a there, there is definitely a business angle to this, and uh, BBC has a format deal with Talpa Media Group. Aside from the voices, the first format to come out of that. Well, the, I mean, it looks like you know it was buy one get one free because there's no way that you would choose to wear this. I'd sit in the back of the car with my kids on a long car journey. I'd think of better things to, to do. And, it, you know, the great Nadir at the end is is past the parcel. I mean, you know, bring back the generation game and, you know, even a revamped Larry Grayson version. I mean, it's, you know, Italian pom-pom girls and Brazilian dancing. I mean, what's that got to do with, with Britain? I don't know. Other than the hilarious thing of putting Frank Skinner and you know, whatever his name is, in a, in a bikini top. <laughs> Stephen, surely the production community in the UK could come up with something better. Well, I loved it. No, oh, no. <laughs> no, I didn't. No. <laughs> of course I didn't. No, no, but I am a true patriot, as uh, Gabby said often during the show. Gabby Logan, who was actually in for David Williams, he was originally lined up to See, host See, that would have show. made a bit more sense. Yeah, I mean, but to then me... suddenly he was busy. He did the pilot and then he announced to BBC bosses, I'm too busy to continue to do this. Now, sure clearly he, he ran a mile, didn't Possibly he? Possibly because he's married to a Dutch lady and he'd seen the Dutch original, but um, <laughs> it, was a, it was a mess. It was basically a mess. It was a mixture of 10 formats. It had that awful Euro trash kind of Italian game show kind of feel. The comedians were working hard. I mean, Mickey Flanagan and Frank Skinner did a lot of work. Mm. It's tough. It's a tough watch. Uh, and I say that as a patriot who knows where Peterborough is and uh, loves Jamelia and her sort of Birmingham anecdotes and all the rest of it. But um, Gabby's not a star. She's not an LE star. The show's a mess. The format's kind of five different things. The Pass the Parcel is the worst moment of TV ever. But obviously I'll be tuning in next week. <laughs> Jonathan, was there anything that stood out for you? I didn't think the past parcel was the worst, actually. I thought the town crier moment mm, um, it sort of eclipsed that in spectacular fashion. The bit was good as well. I was really dreading having to come and talk about this because 
lots of people have obviously worked very hard on this. They've got families, you know, they're, they're, they're decent human beings. But yeah. I genuinely don't know what to say about this. When I first started watching it, I thought, OK, it's just as the intro is going to be sort of this bad. And it got worse and worse. And I think they went for that sort of kitsch, sort of Berlusconi sort of sensibility, maybe on purpose. But it, I think it really spectacularly backfired. The rounds were terrible. I just felt I felt embarrassed. Moving on to a, another very British construct, uh, Channel 4's The Dealership. It's a new three-part obdoc that looks under the bonnet of an Essex used car dealership to reveal the secrets of flogging motors. It's produced by boutique factual indie platform productions and begins on the 1st of August. Let's hear a clip. You can't go. You've got to buy it. I ain't be funny. It's the cheapest car in line. We're proper. The paperwork is phenomenal. I do the line. I draw the line. I've got under a pound on my card. Bingo. He's moved. Now James is back in control of the sale, but they're still £300 off. Now he has to play hardball. Jonathan, is this the risky programming that Channel 4 is preaching at the moment? No, it's not the risky programming that they, I think, should be doing. However, I think this is a good programme. I really enjoyed watching it and I think they should be commended for, I don't know what constitutes, you said, a boutique production company and platform. Um, I don't know what a boutique one means, but they're obviously a small indie and they've gone with a small indie to make this show. I thought this show was really good. I thought the characters were good. There was lots of suspense about whether people would buy cars. It was a genuine insight into this um, world of how cars are sold. The only thing I thought was um, sort of made me sort of sit up and think was the voiceover, which I think was slightly sort of forced. And I think they... Yes, it was very Ray Winston, wasn't it? Very Ray Winston, but also they were sort of making value judgments, like this bloke's a fighter or this, you know, when he wasn't. That, I just felt the hand of the producer slightly. But I really, really enjoyed it and I enjoyed the characters and I woke up this morning still thinking about that programme and that's always a nice thing. So I was glad to have watched it and I think it should do well. Stephen, were the characters enough to distract from what is actually a fairly dull pastime selling cars uh, yeah i mean i thought i thought I, I agree with jonathan i thought it was a really good show i really enjoyed watching it and i was desperate to know whether or not the, the failing uh, salesman was going to close the deal at the end the character the lead character was brilliant you james know, I mean, you know with his talking nonsense and the, the young schoolboy apprentice was quite funny I thought it was like a proper documentary with quite strong entertainment qualities, but actually still a documentary. It was, you know, I was I was watching it thinking, how did they get in here? Did those girls buy that car with the mould on it or not? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. if they did, they're going to sit at home thinking there was mould on this two minutes before we got in the car or whatever. And it was really, really entertaining. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I, I really liked it. And I, I mean, actually, when it first started... I thought, oh no, here we go on this sort of formatted approach that we keep seeing on, on Channel 4, you know, the same sort of music and, and the setup of characters. But the, And I was sort of yearning for more facts, but then you started to get them, you know, I mean, just things that are actually really informative for the viewer but in a very entertaining way, sort of, you know, the interest that you pay on a lease car. And when, you know, when that guy calls up and finds he's got 18 grand left to pay and you think, you know, wow, it was just, there's lots of moments like that and that sort of the bargaining and, and you know, the, the dad and the daughter and, and her little face. And, you know, I think there were lots of, really lovely moments in it so I think it'll do well I mean it's a three-parter isn't it I mean that's, that's the only right. thing whether it sort of felt to me like a bit of a, a one-off I don't know would you would you sort of definitely tune in for 
more? I mean, it's definitely a one-off in the old-fashioned model. I mean, they're probably stretching it a little bit, but it, I would probably watch that again because, uh, you know, anybody watching that would take away a lot of information on how to sell. You know, I was watching this thinking, God, I'm going to do this the next time I go into Channel 4 and pitch a show. I'll get up and leave the commissioner. Just think about it for a couple of minutes yeah. and then I'll come back in. <laughs> Have a chat with your family. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I love the fact, yeah, 31 cars a month is what they have to sell. I mean, you know, you think it's tough selling programmes. My God, that's quite quite a punishing target, it seems like, doesn't I'm sure, it? I'm sure Stephen sells 31 a month. Is it going to be a good enough sell to halt Channel 4's ratings decline? I don't think you can say this is, this is the show that's going to save it, but in the context of this show, this is a very good show and they should be applauded for uh, doing it. Mm. I also thought the most ingenious device in there was the use of the work experience person mm. to give a sort of completely different view on what this world was like, and it was very amusing and I think very telling that he basically could express what these people were like in a very funny way. I, I just wonder whether one could have used him instead of a voiceover. He could have told us just as much as the voiceover did, really. Yeah, that would have worked really well. Um, mm. But it was really, really well made and well done to them. You know, that girl and her mother and the father was a brilliant bit of TV. Mm. You know, it was amazing to watch. That was pure psychology. It was like an experiment. Yeah. You know, and, and the guy was playing them. Yeah, it was such an intimate moment and it was just captured as though, yeah, literally, as you say, like there was nobody else there in that room, no cameras or anything. And we won't give away whether he uh, managed to sell her the car or not. Um, that's it for today. Uh, my thanks to Lisa Campbell, Stephen D. Wright and Jonathan Stadlin. If you've liked what you've heard, then please share us around. And if you're not a broadcast subscriber, please give us a go. My name is Jake Cantor. The producer was Matt Hill. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to The Broadcast Podcast, recorded at Maple Street Studios.